мы повысим заработную плату и в, в России может быть создано министерство госбезопасности. Федеральная служба безопасности, видимо, расширит полномочия. На... 2018 -го года предполагается создать на основе ФСБ министерство Желание Владимира Путина укрепить режим. Well, we pretty much know what's going to happen on March 18th, but the real suspense is what happens next. And the Russian media has been filled with speculation and leaks that after the election, Vladimir Putin is planning a major overhaul of the security services. And the rumors of a Siloviki shakeup come as the Kremlin is conducting a major purge of regional leisures in Dagestan, which many expect to be expanded to other regions as well as well as to federal ministries. What the Kremlin leader does with his Siloviki will provide a big clue about how he intends to govern in his fourth term. So what can we expect? Where is the Russian security state going? And what does it all mean? Hello from our broadcast headquarters in Prague, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me here in the studio is co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and author of the forthcoming book, Vody, Russia's Super Mafia. Welcome back, Mark. Hi there, Brian. So, Mark, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, according to a recent report in New Times by Ilya Razjetrinsky, one of the more informed journalists writing about the Siloviki these days, those old plans to create a super ministry, the Ministry of State Security, the MGB, with a charming Stalin-era acronym, which would absorb the FSB, the Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, and the Federal Guard Service, the FSO, although not the Presidential Guard Service, is back on the table. The idea was first floated in the summer 2016. It's backed by the FSB as it would balance the growing power of the National Guard in Viktor Zolotov. FSB Director Alexander Bortnikov has been mentioned as one possible person to head it, as has FSO Chief Alexander Kochnev. According to the report, the idea to create another new structure, the Federal Investigative Service, is also being floated, and that plan is opposed by both Interior Minister Alexander Kolokoltsev and the FSB. And there's been leaks also that Putin is unhappy with the FSB due to its attempts to limit the National Guard's power, its confrontation with Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, and its failure to prevent terror the terrorist attack in April 2017 in St. Petersburg. And finally, if that's all not enough, um, there's reports that Investigative Committee Chief Alexander Bestrykin is about to lose his job. Mark, unpack all of this for us, because I'm just reading this in the Russian press. You're the security service expert. How realistic does this, all, does this all sound? We've heard this stuff before. We have. We have. Uh, and if it's real, what's the point of all this? Well, let me start, as it were, with the trees, and then we'll move on to the forest. That's a good idea. <laughs> um, if, if, if we look at these individual proposals... Um, start start with the Ministry of State Security, the MGB, which, I mean, as you'll recall, I always felt had never actually been put away. It had always just been shelved when it was raised before as a sort of an idea that might have its time, but its time wasn't quite then. Right. It was shelved in the summer of last year. Yeah. And, and to be honest, it, it has a it has a much longer um, pedigree. I mean, it, it, this idea bubbles up without, no, without the particularly charming name. I mean, now we know why... You know, they they might have have decided to to block the death of Stalin in the film, um, <laughs> in pre precisely because Stalin is is still with us. Um, that that is absolutely and unashamedly a power grab by the Federal Security Service. Mm -hmm. um, there is very very little operational rationale for for any such sort of 
mega service, even though the FSB is moving more into the sort of territory of the foreign intelligence service. Mm. But but still, I mean, basically the FSB's core business, shall we say, is is domestic political control mm. and a little side order of law enforcement. Um, and just like the old KGB, the, the first chief directorate that handled foreign intelligence was always a semi-detached mm-hmm. body, even with its own headquarters at Yasinova. Right mm-hmm. um, you know, so too is what would happen. Here. So I mean, the MGBs, it's getting a lot of headlines because it effectively would be a recreation of the of the KGB. Yeah, exactly. Um, and never mind the optics, but also, as I said, in, in terms of effectiveness, I think there's little reason for suggesting this. But the reason it would happen is precisely because... Putin wants to put his trust in fewer people. And again, I think, therefore, I, I'll sort of stick a pin in there, come back to the fact that this will only be happen as a political move for political, not operational reasons. So come on to the politics in a moment. Mm-hmm. Then if, though, if we move on to the whole business of the Federal Investigation Service, I mean, there is actually a little bit, little bit more interesting because what is clear is that the Investigations Committee does not really work in its current format. I mean, there are obviously effective uh, in individual investigators doing individual investigations. And we tend to focus on the, the high profile, the political, mm. the particular miscarriages of justice. We mustn't forget that actually the, the, the overwhelming majority of, of, their, of their work is perfectly straightforward, perfectly technical and, and right. carried out. Because when the Fed, I mean, I just wanted to get one other thing in here. I mean, I, w- I was reading the press reports about this proposal to create the Federal Investigative Service or the, S, uh, the FSAIR. And they're saying, well, it would be modeled on the American FBI. I'm like, hmm, that sounds familiar. And I went back to the press reports when the investigative committee was founded. You know, it was like, well, it would be modeled on the American FBI. I'm like, all right, what's that, what the hell's the difference here? Well, yeah, I mean, in part, it was because it was never actually an FBI. I mean, of course not. When, of course no, but not. E- even in terms of its role, I mean, when when people ask me what the closest American analogy is, I mean, after I have said, stop looking for an American analogy, you moron. I would generally go, it's more actually, it's, it's the DA's offices that are actually mm. probably closer. But no, I mean, I think that the thing is, it's, it's, at the moment, what we see is every major case pretty much invariably becomes the locus of a vicious squabble between the investigatory committee, between the regular investigators of the police, between the Federal Security Service and so forth. And I, and I think that, you know, they, they, they realize that this, this doesn't really work very well. So what you have is... On the one hand, people saying from a from a purely professional and operational point of view, it might be worth actually having some more established centre. Then you also have people, particularly within the FSB, thinking, hey, hey here's yet another empire-building opportunity that we could actually create an organisation that we end up, up dominating. Well, yeah, but how is that going to work? How, how is the reporting structure going to be different between what the FSR, the Federal Investigative Service, the proposed FSR, Federal Investigative Service, would be and the investigative committee. Well, the thing is, um, the investigative committee would clearly just be folded into it. Mm-hmm. But the point is, it, it's not about the FSB wanting this as an institution. It's people within the FSB. Again, oh. I mean, this is this is a d- d- dimension we often miss. We don't think of these as kind of monolithic blocks. Um, I I believe that that uh, Bortnikov himself, in terms of where he's putting his political juice, it's towards creating the MGB, mm-hmm. this super industry. Mm-hmm. And I think there are others within it who actually are thinking, well, we don't, we, we're, not, we're not sure if the MGB will ever be created. But on the other hand, because we happen to be within, for example, economic crimes areas and so forth, you know, the, the areas that w- which would be dominant within 
this new federal investigatory service. We want to support this. It's an absolute mess. Final point I would make before I try and bring some clarity, because I know at the moment I'm just simply creating chaos, which is the usual sort of model of, of, of Silovic politics, is when one looks at all these conversations and discussions about Bastrikin's future. Right. Because so much of it actually revolves around that. I mean, it was interesting, uh, again, the New Times article that brought up the fact that at Bastrikin's most recent big gathering of the sort of mm-hmm. go- governing board uh, of the investigatory committee, instead of having someone on the caliber of a Putin or head of the presidential administration, um, he had had to, to put up with Ragozin and Yarovaya, right. who are big-ish beasts, but they're not, again, in, in, in the symbolic terms that really right. matters in and this kind of opaque system. Like exactly. So, and, and, and Pastrykin has, has always been under threat, because, again, this is, this is a guy who, who doesn't have allies. any great sort of allies and, and hasn't really proven himself to be that efficient. But the key thing is this. Pastrykin basically set up the investigatory committee in its current form himself which meant that he had this wonderful opportunity to populate his upper echelons with his own people. So the thing is, whereas many of the other agencies, you could think, well, we we just get rid of the guy at the top, put our own guy in on, mm. there, and we're in charge, you would really have to gut the right. upper echelons of the, of, of the investigatory committee. This way, by creating a, a different parallel structure, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they can just basically fold the bits that they want into it. And, oh, dear, it's like... With the, so you it's know, a human resources trick. Yeah, or, 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 or musical chairs. Um, <laughs> you know, just making sure that the music stops at the point when Bastrikin and his friends can't, can't get a chair. So, OK, all this... But the reason why we're having these discussions is not that all of these are going to happen, or indeed maybe even that any of them are going to happen. I think what it really speaks to is this wider point about the fact that everyone knows that some kind, or believes that some kind of change is coming. That after the election, not necessarily immediately, but essentially mm. that, that, that Putin is looking to, to, to restructure the basis of governance. But no one knows what it is. And I think this is, this is fascinating because these are people, Bastrykin, Botnikov, Zolotov, and so forth, these are people who inside... Who, you know, the people the who inner, don't talk inner, to the us. Inner, exactly. inner These are the yeah. guys who are meant to know what's going on while we're just trying to guess based right. on their actions. And what this says to me is they don't know what's going on, <laughs> or at least that they realize that everything is up in the air. So we're back to one of these combinations of turf wars, but also policy advocacy moments. Right. Everyone's trying to sell their own ideas. One thing I also wanted to add on the on the FSR, the Federal Investigative Service, it's being opposed, obviously, Alexander Kolokoltsev, the, 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 the interior minister, is opposed to it for very obvious reasons, but the FSB as well. Why the FSB? I think, in, well, for two reasons. Um, one is, again, sort of because it's actually, this is more, I think, an initiative of part of the FSB, and such are the zero-sum politics that if some people in the FSB want something, then others will probably be opposed, opposed to it. But secondly... Um, I think the idea is that it, that this would this distracts from the creation of a Ministry of State Security. Uh-huh. It was floated at the same time the MGBF thing was floated back in 2016. Uh, I mean, but again, but this this again these are these are long term discussions um, in various formats. Mm-hmm. We have seen them for years, and precisely as you pointed out, in many ways, this is just a reprise reprise of. The discussions that when the investigatory committee was floated out of the general prosecutor's office, the idea of it'll create this really efficient FBI analog, which it didn't. Right. So, I I mean, I think the thing is, these are unresolved issues. The bottom line is this. The Russian system is one in which actually um, all of these agencies are constantly 
competing. They're, they're expanding for turf, and they're trying to cherry-pick individual cases that are politically or economically lucrative. Mm. Um, and the whole nature of Putinism is precisely to create these competitive and, and overlapping agencies, which means there will constantly be these, these struggles. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can guarantee you that if they do create the interior, uh, the um, Ministry of State Security or the Federal Investigation Service or whatever, then in five years' time, if Putin is still there... Mm-hmm. There will be discussion about well, what new agency do we need right. to create this? I mean, just to go back to one point, you mentioned the National Guard, the Rosgvardia. Now, the point of creating the Rosgvardia was precisely in order to create this secure, loyal institution that Putin could rely on. In some ways, precisely as a counterbalance to the to power the of the FSB. But already what's happened is instead of actually resolving the problem, it has just created yet another front for empire building, because we have the Rosgvardia trying to take over bits of the interior ministry, Mm -hmm. the Rosgvardia moving its metaphorical tanks onto the territory of the FSB, and the FSB trying to crowd out Mm -hmm. the National Guard. So actually, each each agency that's meant to solve the problem actually exacerbates it. In Mm -hmm. this respect, it's a microcosm of of, of the, the management of the political bureaucratic structures of Putinism today. Now, let me add another bit of confusion to the puzzle here. As I <laughs> yeah, know, there wasn't enough. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, according to these reports I've been reading, Putin is also unhappy with the FSB right now, as I noted in, 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 in my remarks earlier, because of this attempts to limit the National Guard's power, because of its con- long-standing confrontation with Kadyrov, um, not just about the Nemtsov assassination, but going way back. Um, if you remember correctly, when when uh, Kadyrov was first appointed the head of Chechnya, he got into a conflict with the local FSB, which resulted in Kadyrov locking them in their building and welding the door shut. And, and Patrushev, who at the time was FSB director, had to come down to Chechnya to resolve it. And the issue wasn't resolved in the favor of the FSB. But this 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 thing is longstanding. Putin's not happy about it. And the failure to prevent the terrorist attack in April 2017 in Petersburg. Now... We got that, but at the same time we have this the 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 MGB being floated, the super ministry, and the, but then we have the the uh, the Federal Investigative Service, which the FSB opposes. So you have to wonder all about you know Putin's politics of balancing here, right? Um, if he were to give Bortnikov and the FSB the MGB, which is what they want, that would throw everything out of balance. Is the Federal Investigative Service just another an, an attempt to balance this out, given that, or do you even buy that Putin's unhappy with the FSB? Right? I think, I think there's a bit of unhappiness. I'm, I'm not sure how far, because we, we, we've seen this time and time again. Putin relies on the FSB, his most natural constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, it, as everything else, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a devil's bargain, or, or maybe just simply a mildly unhappy marriage. Um, you know, there will come times when he's thinking, well, the FSB is not giving me what I want or it's, it's, it's nagging me too much or, or whatever. Mm. But when it comes down to it, he, he tends to then default back to the FSB mm. in, in due course. I think, again, the problem is the FSB is undoubtedly the biggest individual beast right. in the Silovic um, ecosystem. Um, and as such, obviously more is expected of it. And as such, it also, it also is disproportionately um, carnivorous. Right. In terms of its aspirations, which again means it becomes more of a problem for Putin. Every now and then, Putin has to slap it down as it gets too overweening. He never slaps it down too much. Right. He still keeps it as the biggest beast, but he wants to ensure that it's that there is some degree of 
a balance, whether it was when he, when he created the Federal Narc- Anti-Narcotics Service, right. again, to be some kind of balance. Which was later disbanded. Exactly. But then it, absorbed it was the investigatory committee's role to do that. And then it became the, the National Guard's role to do that. So he constantly creates some kind of counterbalance. So it could be that the Federal Investigative Service represents that role. Uh, but, uh, but what's fascinating is also the fact that there's also this suggestion that the Ministry of State Security could be headed by Kochnev, as you mentioned. Right, I was going to I was going to come to that. Um, tell me a little bit about Kochnev because he's not a household name. He's not a household name, and I think probably he will remain that. Um, he, he, he is by reputation a sort of a competent um, administrator of the head of the federal head of the Federal Guard Service. He's, uh, yes, and previously, previously he was head of the Presidential Security Service, which means he has FaceTime with right. Putin. I mean, his background, I mean, he spent two years in the military before going into law enforcement. Um, he actually spent most of his time was in law enforcement until 2002 when he joined the Federal Guard Service. Um, but again... He was know, a surprise replacement, too, there, right? He was... Not really, in the sense of... I mean, the, the, the head of the Presidential Security Service is always... The senior of the dep or counted as the senior of the deputy heads of, of the FSO. The, the, the problem was that his predecessor Murov, right. who had been the longest serving of all the various uh, post-Soviet intelligence and security chiefs, um, in some ways had made that position himself. So that it was very hard for anyone else to to be imagined within it. Now Kochnev is not so far, I would say, demonstrating himself to be a particularly high-profile or necessarily impressive figure. But then again, that's in part, that's really what, what the job involves. Murov was not, when he was first appointed, apparently a high flyer. Uh-huh. He grew into the job. So it's possible that Kochnev would. But I think the point is, if, if Kochnev was given this job, I, I will confess I would have questions about his capabilities. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he has those capabilities. But that would be a fascinating way of seeming to give the FSB exactly what they want, but mm. then putting them subordinating them to, to someone else. But the thing is, I, I tend to feel that Putin is not very brave when <laughs> it comes to dealing with his own spooks, and let alone his own bodyguards, <laughs> um, which is perhaps with, with, with good reason. I, I think all of this bubbling up is not so much because it's driven by the Kremlin. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear that the Kremlin was, for example, annoyed with the FSB about the St. Petersburg terrorist attack. Right. And more to the point, what that demonstrates about the FSB, that it is not on top of the potential Central Asian terrorist threat. And that yeah. is a, a very real, very serious challenge. Fair enough. But on the other hand, I think more, more, more generally, this is <coughs> largely coming from below. This is largely coming from agencies and people within the agencies. Um, rather than actually sort of some, some grand plan. Again, it, it is this sense that we are at one of these flux moments, mm-hmm. that there will be power lying in the streets, and so people are trying to get ready to be able to pick it up, rather than that there's any kind of grand plan. Right. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the personalities here. I mean, you, you, you mentioned FaceTime with Putin, and you look at the, the, the figures here, and who who is close to Putin, who who has the, the inside track and the personal... Uh, it says because you have Bortnikov, who is fairly close to Putin, it appears. You have Zolotov, who is. You you, you have Kochnev, who probably has some FaceTime now, but 
isn't particularly. And then you have people like Kolokoltsev who are completely on the outs and Bastrikin who appears to be completely on the outs, right? How much do the personality politics play in here? I think it does play a considerable role, um, particularly on the absolutely crucial element of trust. Um, It's not that I think necessarily Putin doesn't trust in the sense of actively mistrusts others, but I I think it is clear that he does have a very, very personal... Um, approach to who actually you know, mm-hmm. he, he, he's going to regard as his guys. And and this is what is interesting, because precisely, I mean, in, even if we take Bortnikov, um, I don't see there being any really strong personal relationship. I mean, actually, I, I would want to throw in one other name, who is the, always the sort of the silent partner when we talk to Soloviki, Patrushev. I was just, I was just wrote, I just wrote the name <laughs> Patrushev down, yeah. you, you anticipated yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, the, the whole point is Bortnikov is Patrushev's vicar on earth. Um, you know, he is, in that respect, Patrushev's Patrushev is probably the closest to Putin of all of these, except yeah. with the exception of maybe Zolotov. Yeah, but even then, I think Zolotov's got a different kind of relationship. I mean, I think Patrushev is is a peer. Right. In a way that Zolotov is not. Zolotov is a trusted insider, but I don't think he's a peer. I, I don't get the sense that Putin would ask Zolotov for his opinion, on, except maybe oh, what's the best way to break a kneecap. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, I think Patrushev actually does... Feature in those he's inner, almost like an alter circles. Ego. So oh. yeah, I mean, in a way, it's a little bit like the role that, that Ivanov Ivanov used, used to, play. to play, and slightly to an extent. But still I get the does, sense but, but that Putin trusts Patrushev more than he yeah. trusted Ivanov. Well, I think again, to be honest, I don't think anyone c- considers Patrushev to be a future president, including most importantly Patrushev. Right. Where Ivanov in a way clearly that, whereas thought, so, yeah. exactly was, was was not the end. So anyway, so 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 Bortnikov is there because he is Patrushev's shadow. Um, so you know, it, it, which it makes does, him pretty safe. It in, gives him you know, exactly, but, but on the other hand, again, it, it makes him safe, but not necessarily one who can initiate things directly. Mm. You know, this is why I think we have a lot of this is happening in public, right? Because he can't just simply next time they're you know sitting, sitting around the banya or what, whatever it is that now, Putin he's an does with his people. Guy. Does he play the FSB's hand in this, or does he play? Is he playing his own hand? Is he an honest broker? Um, I, I, I I think there is a, cl- a close sense in which the FSB is theirs, mm-hmm. and therefore Patrushev and Bort. I mean, anyway, when when Patrushev was elevated from from directly heading the FSB, you know, he made a point of putting his guy right. in, in place, and so in in in, in many ways, Patrushev is still, mm-hmm. shall we say, the godfather uh, of, of of the FSB. So that's a really important point. And then Zolotov, as I said, is different. Zolotov, I think, is trusted. And that's what's his great thing. But, but you know, regarded as de- de- definitely a, a trusted lackey rather than a uh-huh. peer, which, again, is a very, very strong position to be in. Whereas many of these other people, exactly. I mean, Kochnev, it's still hard to judge. Yeah, more, I, think, I was surprised to see his name pop up. Well, he might be, in some ways, he might be, shall I say, Zolotov's equivalent of Bastrykin, of, of, sorry, of Bortnikov. To Patrushev, uh-huh. in, you know, because let's okay. face it, you know, Zolotov. So he's, was he's previously, Zolotov's guy, basically. Well, one would presume so. Again, right. it's, it's very difficult because of he's institu- one of the very institutionally. People we yeah. really don't know much, but you're but right. Institutionally, the link yeah. would be there. Um, so, so you know, it, it could be that this is this is the kind of the proxy war that is being played out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, though, people like like Bastrykin, Kolokoltsev, the Interior Ministry, Chaika at the General Prosecutor's Office. 
Um, you know, these are just simply functionaries. Well, we've been hearing rumors about Kolokoltsev getting sacked forever now. It well, yeah, never because, seems to happen. I well, mean, it never seems to happen because I think the issue is this that you know, as you point out, the guy's a competent cop. He's a competent cop who has high reg- reputation still within within the, the sort of place. Yeah. What has happened is you might say that the bits of the Envedere which are politically useful have either explicitly or more often covertly basically been been chewed up by other agencies. I mean, for example, if one looks at both the Economic Crime Directorate of the NVD or the E-sections, which are the anti-extremism, mm. you know, extremism like... In quotes. You know, exactly. <laughs> um, those are basically now dominated by the FSB. Uh-huh. Uh, they are now essentially the... When the FSB needs warm bodies to actually go and do arrests and such like, they basically get the NVD to do it often. If they need people to be surveilled or whatever, they get the NVD to do it. But basically, they are in, in so charge. So Kolokoltsev basically does real police work and doesn't bother with being the politics police. Well, I mean, uh, shall we say yes, because he's 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 lost those elements. I mean, he's tried to keep the NVD together because these are also the, the, the politically important right. ones. But the point is, he, he has very little clout. And so, yeah, he, he's focused on that. And in a way, he's not a threat. One of the reasons for the creation of the National Guard was precisely that at the time, as the police, and particularly the Amon riot police, were more and more often being deployed to deal with political protests, labor unrest, and such like. And it was clear that there was some dissent within the, the police hierarchy, thinking, mm. well, this is not really our job, this is not where we want to put our resources, and we need to have a positive relationship with the people we are policing to do our job. It was particularly, it was concern that if push came to shove, could you properly trust the police hierarchy, the police command structure, um, to, to go out and, 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 and break heads? That, that led to the creation of the National Guard and the transfer of the Amon riot police mm-hmm. and other similar units to, to, to Zolotov's tender right. verses. So again, I think what, what we have seen is in a way Kolokolsev has survived, even though he's not regarded as one of us necessarily, because he is now sort of, he's, he's a kind of refuse collector or, or sewage cleaner right. in, in chief. Mm. You know, he does a necessary job. What's left is the unglamorous stuff and fine, so leave it to someone. And you let him stay interior minister. That's the Precisely. There's, there's, there's not any real point in removing mm-hmm. him at the moment. Now, going back to Patrashev, because this is the way I wanted to bring him into the discussion, when I was looking at the, the people that were being the names being floated to head a theoretically new MGB, Bortnikov and, and Kochnev, I was surprised not to see Patrashev because he was always on top of my list as somebody that would obvious, be an obvious choice for that job. Like you said, he's Bortnikov's godfather. Well, why not make it official? You know, if he's the head of the MGB and, and, and Bortnikov's the head of the FSB, which will presumably be subsumed into an MGB, it's, it seems natural why is Patrushev now, or is Patrushev above all of this now? Is he elevated to almost like, you know, a deputy Putin? I think there's a lot in it there. I mean, I, I, I do feel that that's quite a bit. And let's be honest, heading the MGB is going to be one hell of a job. Um, and it might well be that Patrushev doesn't want to have that responsibility. And it's also worth mentioning that, I mean, although the MGB will be much bigger, if Bortnikov moves into it as like, first deputy head in charge of domestic security or, or whatever. In practice, that's a demotion. Right. To move from being you know, the head a, of a powerful institution to being deputy head of an even more powerful one, 
um, actually, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's quite it's even quite, though quite the a step back. amount of people under your command are, are not any less. It's still it, the, I, opti- I mean, the optics. Are, exactly. I mean, the optics and, and and the reality. I mean, you know, okay, Patrushev is is, is sort of floating above all these agencies. I mean, in practice, Botnikov is monarch of his current domain. Right. He would not be that. Um, in in any sort of new structure, mm-hmm. even if even if Patrushev was there, so I I think for all of these reasons, I I mean who knows? It, it might be that, that if he's faced with the choice of that or you know, being given some some sinecure out outside the system, he would take it. But I don't think it's something that anyone would be very comfortable with. Right now, when you look at all these leaks, because I want to get circle back to the to the kind of what this all says about Russian politics right now. Do you see people just like floating? Uh, is is this a turf war being fought out in the media? Are these real things that are really being considered that that are being intentionally leaked to prepare the public? What do you see being being? I don't think here? they're being intentionally leaked from the very top. I don't think it's a question of sort of Putin has is, is has decided or is seriously contemplating and just wants to sort of right. use this as, as so I say kind of opinion polling through the back door. No, I think this actually definitely comes from the level below. And often these discussions, they are at once about the, the specific proposal, you know, let's create a Ministry right. of State Security or whatever, and they are also vessels for wider conversations about why we are Putin's best friends, mm-hmm. why we are more efficient, why we could be doing much more. Again, I mean, I think it's, the chances of actually there being, for example, a Ministry of State Security created are still, I think, low. But, that, but that's not the point, because if, if in the course of that discussion, the FSB manages to make a point to Putin, just think how useful, useful we are. Just think what a mess it would be if we, if we weren't um, the, the dominant agency. You really can't assume that the, sort of, the thuggish National Guard are your first line. They're your last line of defence. Right. We are your first line. You know, all of these things, if, if it gives them a chance to do that, I mean, again, this is the funny thing. These are conversations that are carried out to the media. They, they're carried out with all the appearance of conversations carried out downward-looking to the ordinary Russians. Right. But like all of these, they're actually upward-looking right. to one guy when right. it comes down to right. it. Now, going back to pull it full circle, um, I, I, I liked your 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 analysis here that basically everybody feels the change is coming, but nobody, not even those that are very closest to the body, <laughs> even know, know what it is. So that therefore we're seeing all this playing out. What does this say about the state of the regime, and what does this say about what we can expect from Putin in his fourth term? I mean, does it does it mean we're going to have a another resecuritization of the of the state, if, if as if there's any room to resecuritize it more? Um, does it mean we're in for chaos? Um, what would this because I mean I know this is all conjecture upon speculation upon conjecture at this point, but what what are we looking at here? Denise? Well, I think. Anyway, what we're looking at is a situation which, first of all, and again, just to start with the basics, exactly, I think, you know, everyone everyone knows that change is coming, but because they don't know what it is, everyone is desperately trying to demonstrate their value. Um, I mean, even if we just, you, you mentioned the situation in Dagestan. Um, right. in, in your yeah, preamble. no, I did want to bring Dagestan I mean, into this. Is, this is an interesting case because this is clearly being pushed by the general prosecutor's office, by, by Chaika, who, again, is it's periodically... He's not really a player. <laughs> he's, well, he's not really a player, but on the other hand, he wants to keep his job. And every now and then, um, the question of his future also sort of crops up. 
and so forth. So again, I think in everyone in their own way is trying to find <laughs> some way forever. of saying, hey, hey, I'm still here, I'm still useful. You think that's all this is all about? The whole... I think to a large extent, Dagestan was particularly vulnerable. Because, I mean, let, let's be honest, I don't get the sense that Dagestan, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was clearly had has a a serious corruption problem. Well, uh, if one looks and at I loved sort of Vitaly Portnikov's uh, quip on that, where they're trying. This is all about turning Dagestan into a place where Dagestanis steal into a place where Moscovites steal, <laughs> which I think basically hit it on the head. Basically. But it's not as though I mean, anyway. Dagestan, is, Dagestan of... is, a, is a test case, not in the sense of, I think, what we're going to see in Dagestan. We, I don't think we're going to see this same kind of campaign. Because we're seeing a lot of stuff in the media about how this is just a test case to spread to other regions. This is a test case to spread to federal ministries. It's very high profile. The state media is giving it a lot of attention. Because it's a good way of, of picking a particularly egregious case to scare the rest. I think that's and and it's a chance for Chaikar to show what what he can do. So anyway, so I think the first thing is everyone is busy trying to demonstrate their their capacity, their strength, their usefulness, their loyalty. Secondly, is because I think it's it's so wide open. I don't think we're necessarily going to see a resecure a, a further securitization, a, a super securitization, whatever you want to call it. Though, nor do I really expect we're going to see a liberalization either. I, right. I think you know. No, I, I would think love a lot of to people are thaw. fantasizing about a thaw, it, it, but I think it, it, that's it would be very, very exactly nice to see, it and I will be delighted to be proven wrong on that one. But so would I, I, but I, but I, I don't think so. It. I just don't see. It. Nor do I necessarily, though, see any any kind of a, a serious crackdown. I think that, that the point is at the moment that, that Putin is essentially looking for security and convenience. What it comes down to, if he really wants to crack down seriously, if he genuinely wants a nationwide struggle against corruption. What if he sees a threat? His threat is not from corrupt officials. No, but I mean, that's, but I mean, in terms of a crackdown, what if he sees a threat? I mean, I mean, if he if he actually sees a threat, then that, that that's another matter. But the point is, I, I don't see that there. I don't think there is a threat at the moment. And however much you might have, you know, people like Navalny. the FSB want to talk it up. Look, if they wanted to, to close Navalny down tomorrow, they could. At the moment, there is that sense of uh, the, 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 the reputational and other costs, and the cost, particularly the before cost the elections. Behind. I mean, again, I wouldn't necessarily want to be in Navalny's shoes the week after the election. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I don't see dramatic change taking place. What I do see, though, is that this is a destabilizing force. Because if you make it clear, as Putin has, that changes are coming of some kind. If you make it clear, as Putin has, that personal loyalty is the most important thing, um, and that actually institutional power means very little, tradition means very little, usual checks and balances mean very little, you are basically creating a situation in which, in in, in good Hunger Games style, you are encouraging (laughs) all these people to get out there and, and start competing. Now, again, everyone knows the etiquette. If you go too far... That actually makes you a danger to Putin and you'll be snapped down. Everyone's trying to work out what are the, the parameters the right. of this conflict. And we've seen this before. We've seen other Silovic wars before. Right. The big difference, though, last thing I'll point away to make on this as I, as I ramble on, is that this is at a time when I think the system is quite fragile. It's because everyone knows that Putin's time is coming to an end. So this is not just about where are we going to be in the next stage of Putinism, but that is clearly a major part of it. It's going to be where it's, it's going also to be after but exactly after that, and I think that is what brings in the the unpredictable ingredient X. That... And that is the major difference between the Siloviki War in two thousand seven, which was truly a war. People died, 
Um, and now that took place in 2007 when, again, Putin's second term was coming to an end. But the assumption was Putin really wasn't going anywhere. Quite. Um, even, you know, even with Medvedev in place, the assumption is, 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 is he wasn't going anywhere at all. I love your Hunger Games. I think you may have given me the, the, uh, the, the headline there. I think that's uh, I, I, may, well, that I may go with that. Um, all right. On that note, we'll shift gears in a few moments. We will continue our discussion and look at the fallout from reports that some estimated 200 Russian mercenaries may have been killed last week by U.S. airstrikes in Syria. I'd like to remind you you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me here in the studio is co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and author of the forthcoming book, Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. I'd also like to remind you you could subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes. You could read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at rferl.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Российские наемники были обстреляны в Сирии силами... Стали известны имена еще троих россиян, которые предположительно погибли в Сирии. Восемь граждан России, которые могли быть убиты в ночь. The mercenaries reported were killed in air and artillery fire during a failed attack on a base held by U.S. and mainly Kurdish forces in Syria on February 7th. Mark, this is the scenario everybody was afraid of when Russia intervened in Syria's war on the side of Bashar al-Assad back in 2015. And now it has apparently happened, if you can believe these reports. The the, the numbers of casualties vary widely in, in, in the press um, from, from single digits in some up to over 200 in others. Um, but this apparently happened and the silence from the Kremlin is deafening. Yes, Zakharova made some comments about it yesterday. But really, I mean, if, if this is the, indeed the case, Russian mercenaries attacked a base, a Kurdish base with U.S. forces present. U.S. responded with air and artillery fire and killed perhaps as many as 200 Russians or maybe even more. And the Kremlin's not saying a word. What do you make of this? Or they're saying very few words, I, yeah. to be accurate. I mean, I think that what this truly demonstrates is there is no war in Syria. <laughs> there are about six different wars that happen to be being fought out over the same territory. Um, one of the great virtues from the beginning of this pseudo-mercenary force of Wagner, um, from the Russians' point of view, was its deniability. Now, primarily that was deniability to its own people, so that it could actually put combat troops into harm's way and have them obviously inevitably take casualties, as, as will always happen in battle, while telling the Russians that the that deployment over, in Syria or is either well it's over but also it's 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 a long range war for us it's artillery and airstrikes and hearts right. and mind security your boys basically are not going to come home in zinc boxes right and Putin's already had his mission accomplished moment there precisely. when he ostensibly took the troops home but the other aspect of the deniability is precisely as we see in this situation in which the Russians who I, I I don't think this was a deliberate initiative. I'll, I'll come to it in a minute yeah. about the motivation. But when when something like this happens, and it's clear that the Russians aren't really in a position to do very much about it, they can just sit back and say, 
it's nothing to do with us. It's just, just some mercenaries that may happen to include some Russian citizens. But the point is, it was not us. And it's quite interesting that... that when it clearly everybody them. knows it is them, the Wagner Group is Russia. We, I mean, you wrote Russia. it clearly in your Atlantic piece and accurately about why this was created, what, how it's commanded. But the interesting thing is, again, it's like everything else. That, that the hybridity goes both ways. <laughs> I mean, Wagner is, or certainly was set up, I mean, again, if one, if one goes back, I mean, its, it's roots were, were in the Donbass um, as, as one of the sort mm. of structures for quote-unquote Russian volunteers um, to, 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 to be fighting there. Then from 2015 onwards, it, it's been in Syria. When it was first brought to Syria, it was clearly totally and absolutely a Russian, an you know, additional instrument of, right. of, of, of Russian sort of power there. However, what we now see is that it is sometimes that, and sometimes it is actually an economic venture, because we've we've seen there is this deal with um, Yevropolis, which happens to be a company owned by Putin's good good friend Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, which basically says that Wagner gets twenty five percent of the proceeds from any oil and gas fields that it recaptures, and you know, incidentally, there's a lot of motivation. Yeah, there. well, and, and, and this fact, particular this was operation an oil, it was an exactly. oil field, yeah. precisely. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that very shortly thereafter, the the uh, you know, sorry, in Commissant first, I think it was the Russian Defense Ministry saying, actually, no, this was a dangerous initiative that had nothing to do with us, and we weren't consulted first. Now. I find it hard to believe course, that Wagner would not at least just simply say, by the way, we thought we'd be popping over towards Deir Zor. But they, and, and, and you would think that they know there are Americans there? Yeah, I mean, because this was actually a Syrian-led operation, I, I do have a feeling that this may well have just simply been one of those cases of bad planning and bad intelligence. Mm-hmm. That, it, you know, the, 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 the Syrian, you know, I'm sure the Russians knew where, the American, where Americans were. I don't think the Syrians would necessarily pick a fight with Americans knowingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and therefore, I, I think this, this this was just more of a sort of cock up. In many else. ways, this was inevitable. I mean, you have yeah. American troops and Russian troops on opposite sides on the ground in a hot civil war. I mean, the Bloomberg lead said, "Not since the Cold War has there been." I don't even think during the Cold War you had anything like this. <laughs> I suppose the closest is all those um, sort of North Vietnamese fighter jets that right, whose pilots I mean, happen to speak particularly good Russian. But yeah, exactly. I mean, but, the, but the interesting thing is, exactly the, the point is the Russians are choosing not to make a deal of this. Yeah, the Russians have clearly had had a bloody nose from this. Yep. I mean, I don't believe the the, the two hundred figure. I think probably that, that that's that's a, a naught more than should be. But, that's but the more point than was, all they've lost up to now. That would well, I mean, actually, if one looks at Wagner's total losses, exactly, it's it's, it's one to two hundred since twenty fifteen. Um, but the point is that not so much just about the number of dead. And it's clearly mm-hmm. more than the five that Zakharova right. sort of mentioned. Though, of course, normally the I figures regard the very. I mean, Medusa had a good piece this week about how the figures in the press vary wildly. They do this, very even wildly. in the Russian press. But as I said, but the point is, from Moscow's point of view, um, there's not really a lot it can do. So actually, what it's doing is choosing to back away, it's choosing to disengage itself. And I don't think this is because it's about to do something sneaky or, or whatever. I think it's just it realizes that it is in its interests not to, to turn this into a proxy struggle. Right. Um, because the fascinating thing is, I mean, this comes at the same time as in the south of Syria, we had the Iranian Revolutionary Guard flying a drone into Israeli airspace, the, the Israeli shooting it down, and then launching an attack on the Syrian airbase right. from which this had been... Syrians firing everything they possibly could into the sky and actually managing to down one uh, Israeli plane. And the Russians, with their fancy S-400 system, anti-aircraft missile systems, not even switching the radar on. And I think, think, again, this is the interesting thing. Having realized that there there is a Israel versus Iran... 
There is Syria versus the rebels. There is a political Russia versus United States. There is Turkey versus the Kurds. I mean, is it, <laughs> right. there are all these wars being fought. I think the point is the Russians are trying desperately to keep their eye on, on the wars that matter to them and not get caught in the wars that right. don't. Right. No, the Russians are learning what the Americans long ago learned. It's, it's as you wrote in the Atlantic. It's much easier to get into the Middle East than to get out. But I, I wanted to also t- touch on the two kinds of political uh, pieces of political fallout from mm-hmm. this. The international geopolitical fallout and the domestic fallout. First of all, there's a there's a debate going on. I know which side of it you're on. I think I'm probably on the same side as you on this. Was this a, a, a case of the Russians testing the Americans, thinking they weren't going to do anything and they got burned? Or was this just an accident? And I, I think you seem to think it's the latter and I seem to think it's the latter. But I don't think it matters there because the fact of the matter is this happened and Russia is choosing not to make an issue mm-hmm. of it, given despite their tough guy image in the, you know, that they're trying to present where here clearly they're just like, no, nothing happened here. You know, um, you know, hundreds of our guys may have died, but nothing happened here. What is the geopolitical fallout of this? Is this, does this put a dent in Putin's macho, macho international image for Russia? I think it does. And it's interesting because it precisely is following a, a process that we have seen since the American elections is that having for so long been able to play the role of not just macho, but unpredictably macho. Right. Um, even though actually the Russians would tend to be very, very careful in calibrating exactly how far to push. But they relied on the fact that they, they believed that they could always predict America's likely red lines and America's right. likely response. Now that's not the case. Now they're clearly, like the rest of us, finding <laughs> it far, far harder to predict American policy. And they're actually have been backing away from the Americans. They're, they're still pushing Europe mm-hmm. um, quite quite forcefully. But America, they, they, they clearly are being much more cautious. But about. interestingly enough, I mean, I don't think Trump made the call here to, for, no. for the Americans to engage the, the, you know, these mercenaries. I think that that was probably made on the ground, I would guess. Or, but it certainly didn't go all the way to the desk of the president. So they're really, I mean, I could see the Americans responding the ex- exact same way if the president had been Obama or But this or is Hillary all about perceptions. But yeah, well, you're right. Well, so yeah. Two things. One is, I mean, yes, the decision was clear. The call was clearly made, not at the presidential level. But nonetheless, as it were, the president just set, set the tone and, and, and set the sense of, of what American policy ought to be. Or the, def- or the secretary of defense. Well, but, but who is serving at the, the pleasure of the president? But I think again, you know, this is all about perceptions and so forth. And I think the thing is, the, 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 the Russians, I think, have been caught off guard, and are not quite sure how to handle the how to handle the Americans. And that means that they've lost one of their key strategic assets, which mm. is precisely their "Don't mess with me because I'm crazy." Right. Um, sort of whole whole act, which which did work. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just a final point is is that given, particularly if one looks at the Middle East, I mean, Russia has gained considerably in terms of its capacities by, by backing its own guy and being willing to, to really support Assad and also you know, seeming to be willing to back up its rhetoric with action. Mm-hmm. Now, inevitably, I mean, already, I mean, one, one can... One can dispute precisely sort of what happened exactly, but nonetheless, the Turks are clearly not waiting for the Russian initiative. They're, they're willing to move into Syria mm-hmm. in pursuit of their own interests. The Israelis, likewise, even if the Russians were willing to sort of let, let it happen, 
But the point is, ultimately, this was the Israelis shaping the battlefield in the south, and now you have the Americans responding. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether or not the Russians try and break out of what otherwise seems to be a, a situation in which they're actually losing the political initiative. Mm-hmm. On the American side, and this is the thing that crossed my mind, when the decision was made to engage those mercenaries, do you think it was understood that, they're, they're, that you know, we did have a potentially explosive situation here? I would presume so. This has been, after all, a topic that has been discussed in so many different yeah. forums and, and, and so many times. But But when it comes down to it, I mean, again, I think... And I hesitate because I, I don't want to sound like one of the people who say, well, let's face it, the Russians, there's only one thing they understand, and that's force but. and so forth. But on the other <laughs> hand, there is a point at which, actually, when you have a challenge like this, this was a pivotal moment for, yeah. for the Americans. Either they responded or they, they basically bugged out, at which point they were basically handing full... Well, then you would have had the initiative. exact opposite situation Precisely. of Americans being killed by Russians in pressure on, in Washington. But, but the particular thing that actually, in some ways, and maybe this is a little covert militarist within me that I think impressed me, is when they responded, they responded with gratuitous overkill, <laughs> which is exactly the way it should be done. Not a sense of, oh, well, we'll put a shot across their bows or a well, warning shot. Or the U.S. Down. armed forces are deadly serious about force protection. Um, anybody that's that, that's dealt with the U.S. military knows that. So I, I, I'm not surprised. But again, what that says is they're though. clearly not operating under the kind of political constraints right. that, 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 that would tie their hands behind it. Like. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as I said, and, and they did it right. Mm. Now, there's another political aspect of this, of course, the domestic political aspect of this. Um, now, you're getting predictable calls from people like Grigory Vlinsky for Putin to speak out personally on this. But you're also getting pressure from the nationalists on Putin. To respond to this, Russians were killed by Americans. Now, even though the Kremlin doesn't want to admit it happened, mm-hmm. Russians were killed by Americans in, in, in combat. We have to respond. What, what is this? We've been talking about the conflict with the Americans all this time, and they killed our boys, and you're not going to respond. This is, how big of a po- domestic political problem is this for Putin? I mean, I think at the moment it's, it's irksome rather than terribly, terribly serious, because it's, it, it's the usual suspects. It's, it's, it's the Union Strelkov, of Cossacks. It's, it's Strelkov claiming at least 100 died and so forth. Um, I think what it what it does do though is further consolidate this notion amongst the nationalists the the the, the Putin it's all hat and no cattle exactly <laughs> to say it like a yank <laughs> <laughs> um you know, so so I, I I think you know what what it is doing is is actually sort of making digging that trench mm-hmm. um, more and more deeply I'm more interested actually in not just you know a bunch of people who are already opposed to Putin finding more reasons to oppose him but actually what this might do to, to domestic opinion. And again, I mean, I really wouldn't want to overplay this. Uh, and, you know, I've sort of been involved in some discussions on, in Twitter and people saying, well, you know, it's nothing like, for example, the Afghan war and so forth, which is true. But the point is, what, what, what strikes me is as the news comes out, and it's interesting that this is being discussed, this is not just simply on Dodged and Medusa no, and other sort no, of it's what we might call kind of you know, niche anti-regime. Uh, you know, it's actually sort of mainstream newspapers are, are, are discussing this, making it clear. Right. And what this is therefore bringing out is, first of all, you know that war where you thought no Russian boys were going to die except in very unusual circumstances? Well, in fact, thank courtesy of Wagner, there are a lot of Russian boys being put in harm's way, two to two and a half thousand of mm-hmm. start. And in fact, there's been a lot of casualties that you, that you ordinary Russian people never heard about. Now, think of, for example, the furore that emerged... Um, around the Donbass and elsewhere, when we actually had cases of paratroopers, for example, um, their deaths being covered up. What this leads, what this feeds into is a a sort of a sense that that basically the state lies to us. And again, I think 
Syria, it's a relatively small war by Russian standards, and it's a long way away. Most people don't really care about that. These are mercenaries and others. These are people who signed up to be fighters. It's not like you're sending 18-year-old conscripts or whatever. But all the same, it does contribute to this pervasive sense that, in fact, we are being lied to. And that, regardless of anything to do with Syria... I think could be one of the really dangerous things with this regime because that's exactly what happened to the Soviets. Yeah. And to kind of piggyback on that, I mean, Medusa had a good piece this week about that looked at some open source material that was naming the soldiers. So suddenly it's just not just a number. Mm-hmm. These people all have faces and families and histories, and that puts flesh and blood on the whole thing and adds to the political problem. No? Yeah, and, and and these people then become symbols for other things. I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit like, actually, it's an interesting echo of the first part of this podcast when we're talking about things like the Ministry of State Security are not just about the Ministry of State Security. They become wider mm-hmm. tools. Well, likewise, I mean, back in the dawn of prehistory, I did my doctorate on the Soviet war in Afghanistan. <laughs> And what was quite clear is however much I would have loved to have been able to prove that it was crucial in radicalizing people against the regime or similar, it wasn't. What was important was actually the way that Afghanistan and particularly you know, certain blunders and screw-ups and official failures to do with that became basically symbols for wider complaints. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, a face or a particular issue becomes a way in which you can actually really, in in practice, talk about other general problems you have Mm -hmm. with the regime. So this too, this is not actually just about some some lad who ends up falling in a foreign field. It can be about, well, they lie to us, and we also saw that with whether it's the Kursk or whether it's in terms of telling us that our lives are so great when in fact we're feeling the worst. All these other general discontents can, almost like the way a little kind of grain of sand Mm -hmm. can cohere a crystal or a pearl. Mm-hmm. Well, likewise, you know, all of these things can come round it. But it's going to take a bit of time. It's going to take a bit of time. This is, again, this is all part of going, going back to some of our hoary old themes. You know, this is about the decay of Putinism. It is not about the sudden collapse. Right. It is about that bit by bit sense that this is a system that is sliding into dysfunctionality. Mm-hmm. That's a very optimistic note to, to wrap up the week. On that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL, and joining me in the studio has been co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and author of the forthcoming book, Vody, Russia's Super Mafia. Thanks for a fun discussion, enlightening and, and informative, despite the, 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 and all the dark things. subject matter. <laughs> I'd also like to thank our brilliant, patient, and ridiculously overworked producer, Tanya Koncheva, and my indispensable and totally awesome colleague, Pavel Mutorin, managing editor of RFRL's Russian-language television program, Current Time, which you can watch at www.currenttime.tv. I'd also like to remind you, you could subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes. You could read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at rfrl.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical podcast will be taking a brief hiatus for a few weeks as I will be on the road for speaking engagements in Estonia and Poland and in Washington, D.C., preparing for my imminent career move. But we'll be back on March 16th with our preview of that event the Kremlin insists on calling an election. So until then, as always, I leave you with the ambient sounds of my favorite socially conscious Russian rapper, Noise MC. 